Hello and welcome to the NPM Interconnections Podcast. I'm Andrew Burns, reporter for New Project Media. I'm joined today by Chad Farrell, CEO for Vermont-based solar and storage developer Encore. In the Northeast community solar sector, where brownfield development is incentivized, Encore has carved out a niche for itself as an expert on developing and financing projects on challenging sites. But for states to meet their renewable goals, project development is ultimately going to have to branch out to greenfields. Today, we're going to hear Chad walk us through that future, as well as discuss the interconnection challenges currently plaguing the Northeast. Chad, thank you very much for uh, being on the podcast today. Uh, thank you, Andrew. It's uh, it's great to be here. Really appreciate the opportunity. It's an honor to have you. And, and you know, uh, NPM has been doing a lot of coverage lately on um, kind of the community solar space and um, DG Solar and CNI Solar, all those sectors. And, and uh, you know, we know that there's a lot of that going on in the Northeast. So uh, it's great to have you on the podcast to kind of uh, talk about Encore's perspective and, and sort of uh, the things that, that you guys have accomplished so far in the industry and where you guys are going. Um, but to, to, you know, kind of introduce uh, the listeners to, to you and, and what Encore is all about, uh, why don't you talk about um, the sector and, and the markets where Encore is focused? Sure. Yeah. And I think you're you're spot on, right? The community, we call it community scale. Some people refer to it as CNI scale. Um, that that really is kind of the bread and butter of the Northeast solar market. I mean, we have a, a, a pretty robust residential solar market, but as you get into that larger scale utility scale, there just really aren't that many sites that are amenable um, to, you know, 50, 100 megawatt kind of projects like what we're seeing out West and, and increasingly in the Midwest as well. Um, you know, we have topographical challenges, we have population density, uh, you know, we just have different land use development patterns due to the historic nature of, uh, of the markets in the Northeast that we serve. Um, but yeah, I mean, we've been, we've been very active in the state of Vermont, but as we grow, we're increasingly casting our, uh, net uh, throughout the Northeast, um, you know that includes states like Maine, New Hampshire, New York, which are you know natural avenues or areas for growth for us, just geographically. But we're also uh, uh, increasingly interested in in states like Pennsylvania, Virginia, uh, Delaware's starting to get interesting. Um, and you know we are you know we are a um, a traditional solar development platform. Uh, some people refer to it as an origination platform uh, where we are focused on identifying the best sites on which to build larger scale or community scale uh, solar assets and increasingly energy storage assets as well. Um, we're seeing utilities show a, a strong interest in energy storage, especially when it's paired with um, you know, multi-megawatt solar assets. Um, so we've not only diversified geographically, uh, but we're diversifying technologically as well. Um, but from the beginning, you know, we've considered ourselves innovators in the community scale clean energy space. Uh, we have expertise in um, areas of taking brown fields and turning them into bright fields. Um, uh, as I mentioned, we have we have expertise in solar and storage and within that storage um market. Um, we're looking at both uh, short duration as well as long duration storage opportunities. And there are a number of um, transmission constrained areas in which um, we're working uh, where, you know, those kinds of non-wires alternatives, um, you know, especially with respect to long duration storage are becoming increasingly um, necessary. Uh, and then, and then finally, 
Um, you know, re- in, over the last four or five years, we've really gotten involved in the um, in in the field of agrivoltaics. So this is uh, finishing solar projects that we deliver to our customers with uh, pollinator friendly ground cover and or um, you know, um, and or livestock. And, and in this case, it's generally in this part of the country, it's it's sheep. So instead of, you know, performing our vegetative maintenance with noisy fossil fuel powered mowers, uh, we're increasingly turning to natural solutions um, for that vegetative maintenance, you know, in order to keep the, the, the vegetation in and around the solar array from shading our panels. Um, so we've worked with uh, leading experts uh, in this field. Um, we're closely aligned with a number of academic institutions that are, um, you know, proving out the efficacy of this uh, form of vegetation maintenance. And it's really, really exciting because, you know, while we, and I'm sure we'll get into this in, in greater detail, but, you know, while we, um, you know, we, we love the concept uh, of turning underutilized or, or in some cases like a landfill, mm-hmm. otherwise undevelopable land and repurposing that land with renewable energy assets. Um, unfortunately, uh, even though there are a number of those sites um, that are still out there undeveloped uh, with renewables, there's just not enough of them. You know, we could take all of the brownfields and all of the landfills and we could add in rooftops and carports or parking lots um, and we still don't have the, the amount of landscape that we need to um, be generating renewable energy with in order to meet <clears throat> society's decarbonization goals over the next uh, you know, decade, 15, 20 years. So we really do need to look for um, you know, agricultural land that can be repurposed as uh, dual use. So not only are you generating energy, but you're also um, you have a livestock, you have a agricultural function as well. So it's energy and food, um, not energy or food. And, you know, quite frankly, um, most every farmer that we talk to about land lease interest for solar uh, will inevitably point us to the least agriculturally productive areas of their farm as the, the, the site where that would be most preferable from their standpoint for siting of the solar array, right? This would be, you know, a wet meadow, but perhaps not wetland, or it would be, you know, rocky soil, but not too rocky for a solar project, but, you know, not, not so great for agricultural production. So we're really still telling that story of utilizing, um, you know, the least productive portions of a certain piece of property for energy generation. Um, so, yeah, so maybe I'll pause there and, and okay. see if you have any questions. Or... Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good overview. And it is interesting to kind of talk about um, how in the Northeast in particular, we're going to have to start moving from brownfields, which you guys have, have sort of excelled at into greenfields, essentially. And I do want to talk about um, your kind of expertise in the brownfield uh, area. But w- before we get to that, I do want to touch on just the Vermont market in particular. I think it's interesting that Encore is based in Vermont. It's not a market that I hear a lot of other firms talk about. So the fact that you guys are just, you know, on the on the ground there um, and, and based there is interesting. So can you, can you just kind of talk about uh, the, Vermont, the Vermont market and sort of how it compares to some of those surrounding states that you mentioned that are sort of yep. more high traffic. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, certainly we're, you know, one of the smaller markets in the Northeast, but I, I think, um, 
uh, you know, we, we did benefit from Vermont being, you know, what I would call an early mover in the solar market, um, earlier part of last decade. Um, you know, we had strong, uh, uh, leadership uh, in the state house uh, under the former governor. Um, we had, you know, uh, a lot of interest in the legislature about sort of advancing this new, uh, this new field of renewable energy. So there were a number of early programs that were put forth specifically to kickstart this segment of the economy, and you know that that legislative and uh, and policy based work really, you know, really worked and. Uh, you know, as a result, we had um, some some solid um, leadership within the within the solar industry early on. And I would say, you know, 2012, 2013, 2014, so on and so forth. Um, you know, we had uh, the nation's only state level uh, feed in tariff program um, where, you know, the the PPA price uh, for a basically a state of Vermont backed contract was set at a above market price in order to um, in order to generate interest in uh, by the development community in 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 you know turning uh, you know in 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 redeveloping property for solar um, arrays uh, and then following that we had what was one of the nation's uh, leading virtual net metering programs which allowed for um, customers interested in securing uh, energy cost savings, as well as, you know, addressing the increasing climate uh, uh, crisis um, with a means to participate within the clean energy economy. So um, that virtual net metering program was was very popular um, and, you know, resulted in um, a number of projects getting built early part of last decade um, and, you know, really allowed uh, companies like ours at Encore um, to grow and to learn how to, you know, design, develop, permit, finance, construct solar assets. And not only did it allow, you know, companies like ours to do that, but it allowed all the supporting industries that support the solar industry, whether that be the, the accounting industry, the legal profession, the construction profession, the electricians, um, and all of the professionals that are required to help us design and permit these assets. So it really allowed, both of those programs allowed for um, the state of Vermont to really have an early mover advantage. Um, unfortunately, things have, have tailed off a little bit. Um, and, you know, thus our interest in diversifying outside of Vermont, you know, I think from a business risk perspective, it's, it's never great to have all your eggs in one basket. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's a business risk uh, strategy. There's also a diversification, uh, a, a uh, an interest in just sort of growing into new markets that are evolving the way Vermont's was, you know, a decade or so ago. Um, so, but we do, you know, we are, we are, we are guardedly optimistic that things will improve. Um, we're actually working with um, some of our friends in the utility space, uh, some other folks uh, in the legislature to really sort of provide sort of, I, I would call it almost like a third third generation solar and other renewable energy procurement policies moving forward. You know, we've seen tremendous, uh, you know, cost decreases across the industry, right? I mean, I, I went back for a presentation, I don't know, a month or so back and, and looked at, 
you know, the pricing on a per watt basis of what we are purchasing panels for on the first project that we did in that we delivered in 2010. And it was something like $2 and 50 cents a watt. Right. And now we're buying panels for, you know, somewhere in the low 30 cents a watt. So I, I think everybody knows the leaps and bounds with which the industry has grown based on the ability to scale. So what we need to be conveying now to legislators and regulators in Vermont is that this is and will continue to be the most cost efficient way to generate electricity. Um, you know, solar is not the only solution out there, to be clear, but it's an increasingly cost compelling ish, uh, um, a, a, a way to, re- to, to generate electricity. And, you know, I think as we look forward, we just need to continue to stress that, um, you know, from an energy resiliency standpoint, from an energy security standpoint, uh, from a jobs creation standpoint, we need to be continuing to deliver solar energy projects in the state of Vermont moving forward. Again, increasingly paired with storage, um, you know, for load shifting purposes, but certainly, um, you know, we need to continue to have the ability to, to, to deliver uh, you know, increasing amounts of solar energy. And unfortunately, over the last several years, um, you know, we've we've really kind of slowed down there as opposed to speeding up at a time where we really need to be speeding up. So whether it's work, um, you know, I'm a I'm I'm serving on the Vermont Climate Council at present. Um, and you know, the discussion on the Climate Council is one of we need to be doing more, not less. Um, we know that the legislators in Montpelier are interested in in responding to their own constituents' interests of doing more renewables, not less. So, uh, you know, we've got our work ahead of us, but we've got a good foundation to start from. And we've got a lot of, again, because of that early mover advantage, we've got a lot of institutional knowledge um, within the entire sort of, you know, I guess I'd call it the supply chain of of the solar development industry in Vermont. Um, So, um, I guess that's a long way of saying that uh, we, we've had better days in Vermont. We'll, we'll have better days again. Um, and right now it's a little bit of a recalibration as we move away from, um, you know, policies that were put in place and did a really good job of, of, of um, you know, getting the solar industry off the ground in Vermont. And we just need to move towards uh, newer procurement tools where we'll be trading essentially scale for price. Uh, we'll be allowed to go to, a, you know, under what's currently being discussed. Um, the vision is, you know, larger per project size, um, uh, you know, but at a lower, you know, obviously PPA price. Yeah. Okay. And, and when you mentioned that obviously uh, Encore is now looking at, at these other states and, and getting involved in these and these surrounding markets and the the ones as you mentioned, um, is that a relatively new venture for Encore? Or is that something that you've been working on for the last you know few years? Yeah, definitely been the last few years, Andrew. And you know, okay. I, you got to we we always have to remind ourselves of this. In fact, you know, development timelines of these projects, even in a even in a sort of bona fide established market, is really every bit of two years per project um, from the time that you you know, sign a landowner's, you know, you sign a lease, uh, lease option with a landowner. Uh, and you, you know, you sign a customer to, you know, purchase the 
either the kilowatt hours that the array is producing or some attribute of the generation like net metering credits um, to the time it takes to get through the permitting process. And the state of Vermont has a very robust state level uh, permitting process. We call it, um, we, we, we receive a certificate of public good. So the CPG process um, is, you know, is very, very uh, robust. So, and then, you know, working through issues with interconnection. So, and then ultimately, <clears throat> and this is, this is more timely and this hasn't been the case, you know, over the last 10 or so years that we've been delivering projects, but, you know, right now construction, it's mainly procurement timelines, but procurement and construction timelines are really, are really um, being extended due to, you know, all the post COVID uh, supply chain issues, the commodity pricing issues coming out of a once in a generation uh, pandemic. So uh, once in a hundred years, I should say, not once in a generation. Um, so, you know, those, those, uh, those constraints are there. Um, and, uh, but given the fact that those timelines are a little bit longer, yes, when we, and we recognize that, um, yes, we have been active over the last three or four years, um, activating around that geographic, uh, diversification strategy, uh, began with, uh, uh, an investment in the state of Maine, um, we, you know, obviously needed to dedicate resources uh, uh, in the state of Maine to, to, to find the best sites for solar projects, right. ultimately understand uh, and find customers to bring to the table because it is a customer driven program right. where we've got to match up the production of an array with a customer's electrical demand. And, um, and then, you know, ultimately, work through uh, a state that is moving in the direction of increased number of renewable energy assets, but is doing so, you know, without the benefit of having 10 years of, 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 of sustained growth to get there. So what I'm getting at there is just working with the utilities to, um, you know, figure out how to best interconnect uh, a whole slew of solar projects, right? The program in Maine is pretty attractive. So, it developed a decent amount of interest within the development community. And gosh, I believe there was well over a gigawatt worth of projects uh, submitted for interconnection. Yeah. Yeah. Um, ultimately, there's some grandfathering uh, rules that had to be put in place by the legislature last year um, that establishes kind of the date that you had to be in the door. Um, but yeah, that was a significant investment. Um, we've invested time and resources into the New York market, sure. uh, the Pennsylvania market more recently. Um, and, you know, New Hampshire is a, is a natural area of growth for us just across the Connecticut River yeah. uh, from Vermont. But, um, you know, it's been a little bit more challenging. The, the progress there has been a lot slower than we'd like to see, right. though there are signs of, of that um, starting to improve. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, I, I wanted to, to touch on sort of your expertise, which that you mentioned, you know, earlier about uh, brownfield development, because, um, it seems like in some of the, at least in some of the states that I've covered, uh, most recently, the one that I was looking at was New Jersey, where they had done their uh, pilot community solar program year two, and they had awarded a certain number of projects. And every single one of them was either on a brownfield or it was like on some sort of carport rooftop or something like that. So it was yep. heavily incentivized there. So I was curious about um, kind of, since you are, are an expert in brownfield development, can you just sort of talk about um, the challenges that come along with um, brownfield development? 
um, both in terms of siting and uh, development itself, and then in terms of like uh, getting financing for uh, you know for those sort of developments versus the fact that that is like what is being asked for. It seems like from these these programs, like that that's kind of where they want to see. Uh, sure. Yeah, I mean, look in the state of Vermont, we call those sites uh, quote air quote quote unquote preferred sites. And yeah, yeah. Preferred sites, and I know a lot of other states have the same definition, but in Vermont. Preferred sites include landfills, brownfields, rooftops, parking lots, gravel pits. Um, and yeah, I mean, so yes, absolutely. The general public uh, would much rather see us, uh, you know, and it just makes sense, right? Sure. Um, much rather see us utilize uh, environmentally challenged property that cannot be redeveloped for a higher and better use such as, you know, buildings or residential infrastructure. Um, and, you know, when we, when we deploy, let's face it, solar takes a decent amount of um, acreage to produce yeah. a meaningful amount of electricity. So when we deploy solar at scale on these um, otherwise undevelopable assets, we're lowering the development pressure on other greenfield land. And that land could be used for agriculture, it could be used for conservation and carbon sequestration. It could be used for residential purposes, commercial. Um, there, there's always there's always com competing interests for for land, especially in more populated areas of the country, like the Northeast here. So, um, absolutely, we understand the public's interest in um, these types of sites. Um, we've you know reacted to that. Uh, we've seen, like you just mentioned in New Jersey, we've seen states incentivize these these sites because, you know, quite frankly, you have to. Um, you know, let's take landfill projects, for example. They are, you know, the, the number moves around, obviously, based on, you know, current pricing or existing pricing at, the at any time that you're delivering a project. But um, somewhere on the order of 10 to 15, maybe 20 percent, depending on also on scale, more expensive to do, to deliver a solar project on a landfill than a, uh, a piece of greenfield property that you know, is un unencumbered. The reason for that is primarily in the construction uh, phase of the project uh, where there are, you know, we're precluded from just driving out onto the surface of the landfill cap for obvious reasons right. to install um, you know, driven posts. Uh, we're precluded from moving massive amounts of machinery onto the site to install, to, to panelize at rapid pace. Uh, we've got to use things like ballasted arrays um, because we can't penetrate um, the protective measure that's in place, which is generally a three foot cap of, of clean soil, um, sometimes with a geo membrane uh, on some of the newer closed cap landfills. But you know, and then finally, we couldn't um, drive posts into a mound of trash anyways, because there's no geotechnical, um, you know, it's not geotechnically competent to withstand the wind forces that we need to design these projects to. So, you know, whether it's the ballast blocks or the, the, the means with which we construct these projects, which, you know, generally involves low tire pressure or track mounted small bobcat rigs, yeah. uh, so as so as to not exacerbate the settlement within the within the closed cap landfill, um, all of those things add cost. So if 
it's ultimately about if the if the only projects that get into a certain program in a certain state are the cheapest and everything is done on reverse auction mechanism where the lowest PPA bid wins or the you know the lowest you know name it 10 megawatts 20 megawatts 100 megawatts worth of projects um, win then those sites just can't compete um, there are other you know complications on the design and the engineering and the, therefore the permitting a few extra steps to to jump through a few extra hurdles to overcome but you know the the lion's share of the cost increases on the construction side but you know that's it, it, not to that's not to dismiss the upfront risks and additional hoops that need to be jumped through you know again on a on a closed cap landfill we need to demonstrate that um, we are not going to compromise the environmental remedy that's in place, which is that soil cap. So we need to prove that we're not going to create additional um, uh, issues of erosion. We need to demonstrate that we're not going to uh, exacerbate any differential settlement of the of the landfill itself. Um, and you know, we basically need to prove to the regulators. And ultimately, the financiers as well, and I'll get into that. But prove to the regulators that um, even that 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 landfill cap is going to remain uh, competent in you know with a solar array on it, same way it was the same way it was effective in isolating the the environmental risk to the general public when it was a closed cap landfill without a solar project. So, um, <coughs> excuse me, um, with respect to financing. Um, you know that 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 is an added complexity as well, which certainly speaks to additional cost. Um, but we're generally able. I mean, there are a number of uh, environmental insurance products that are available on the marketplace at this point that you know clearly have added cost, but that are extremely effective in limiting uh, any 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 liability to both the the current landowner, right? The 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 whether it's a town or a private company that owns that landfill. They need to know that they're not going to be exposed to additional uh, legal liability, uh, but also the financiers want to make sure that they are protected from any uh, additional perceived environmental risk. So those environmental insurance programs have been really game changers. Um, they do come out of the more traditional brownfield redevelopment market where, you know, building owners were and, and landowners were seeking the same protections. Yeah. Um, so, but but really that. Um, that segment of the industry has really come a long way over the last, you know, six or eight years. Uh, and um, so, but yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, unfortunately, or fortunately, however you want to look at it, um, you know, while there are, you know, and, and the EPA has statistics on this, um, as does NREL, you know, there's millions of acres of, of brownfield property available for renewable energy deployment. Again, fortunately or unfortunately, however you look at it, that that's not enough uh, for the, um, you know, for what our renewable energy requirements are going to be uh, over the next 10, 15, 20 years looking forward. So while it's a it's a tool in the toolbox, it's not the only tool. Sure, sure. OK, well, that, that's a really good uh, sort of dive into into that whole uh situation and, and it is interesting to see you know be certainly interesting for us to track and, and for you to experience firsthand uh how uh, those things are evolving so we'll definitely uh you know keep keep touch on that uh, issue but uh the, the last main uh, topic that i want to tackle with you is something that you also mentioned earlier which is this this growing cost 
of interconnection um is it like and it sounds like uh based on some of the um uh, previous interviews that i've done with other with other firms it sounds like in the northeast in particular this is uh an issue so right in uh encore's uh backyard so is this something that that you guys are dealing with and and can kind of walk me through um you know how big that that issue is yeah. becoming for you yeah I'm, I'm glad you're bringing that up andrew because it is a it is a significant challenge out there right now um you know, and unfortunately, I think we're just grappling with, uh, you know, a situation where, um, you know, we as a society, and this is not unique to Vermont, it's not unique to the Northeast, um, you know, for reasons, for mainly cost reasons, we've, uh, we've essentially underinvested in the grid for decades. Um, you know, Mary Powell, who's now uh, CEO at Sunrun, but was formerly uh, chief executive officer at Green Mountain Power, used to refer to it as grandpa's grid and uh, or twigs and twine, however you want to refer to it. But it's it's a it's an apt analogy um, in that, you know, we really have a 20th century grid that we're trying to plug in uh, a whole slew of 21st century energy generation and storage uh, technologies. So, um, you know, the grid of the past really um, didn't, um, you know, didn't envision, uh, you know, this, this distributed energy boom that we're seeing. And so, you know, we're, we're, we're playing a little bit of catch up. Um, and, uh, you know, but I think I do see encouraging, um, um, solutions, uh, to, to this issue. Um, the first of which, uh, is, you know, the massive amounts of federal funding that are coming, you know, down the pike. I mean, we've got, you know, the ARPA uh, um, uh, funding and now the bipartisan infrastructure bill, you know, right. included additional funding for, you know, uh, improvements to the electrical grid. Um, uh, and then the Build Back Better has the lion's share of it. So we're still sitting on pins and needles, uh, hoping for, you know, an early holiday present and your holiday present there. Um, but, um, you know, there's, it's, it's encouraging to see the recognition that we need massive improvements to our electrical grid to be able to host and support all of these um, 21st century gener electrical generation technologies that, again, let's face it, are going to be the cheapest forms of generation out there. So we need to have a grid ready to, you know, benefit from that that shift um so but we have seen you know like in our home state of vermont um green mountain power is one of the most innovative investor-owned utilities in the country if not the most innovative um they saw the issue of you know increased congestion due to on their circuits due to um you know an increased number of solar generation assets and they create a program that addresses the transmission ground fault over voltage issue generally at the substations. So they, it was called the TGFOV program. And essentially what that did was help socialize the costs of improving the grid, uh, you know, across the entire, you know, sort of solar development community and, and what, and in doing so remove the, um, the problem that was, you know, the next person in pays for everything, right? And because what was happening in that paradigm is the next person in gets, you know, hit with a bill of 
you know, seven figures for an interconnection for a project that's only in the mid seven figures. And, you know, that, that kills the deal. So, right. you know, the deal doesn't get done. The improvements don't get made and we're, we're still where we were um, by socializing those costs. Everybody pays a little bit and the improvements get made. Um, so, you know, between some of the federal funding and then innovative programs such as that um, I'm encouraged uh, and just I'm encouraged by the general awareness of the issue sure. um, that it is an issue that is in need of solutions, but that um, that we are uh, moving forward with a number of those types of solutions. Um, so it's uh, it is frustrating. We, we you know, we, we'd obviously like to be moving faster, but but it is happening. And, you know, again, I think it's also, again, getting back to an earlier comment, it, it's, it's, it's opening up opportunities for additional non-wires alternatives, such as, you know, long duration storage opportunities. So, you know, I think both the market as well as sort of the regulatory community, as well as the utility uh, community are recognizing that, um, you know, we have to look forward, we have to look towards uh, the future and understand that, you know, for climate reasons, uh, for energy security reasons. Um, there's just going to be more distributed generations assets out there on the grid. Uh, and we need to have the grid um, ready to sort of, you know, essentially serve as a two-way street rather than just a one-way street the way it has in the past. Sure. Yeah, it's, it is really interesting to see how that, that issue has evolved, um, you know, just over the course of, of NPM's history, you know, we've been tracking it. And when we started, it seemed like it was just sort of something that you know, we kind of touched on as being like, man, it might be a problem eventually, you know, but then there's been so much, uh, you know, uh, interconnection going on. So, so many people have such large pipelines that yeah, it's become an issue a lot faster, I think, than, than a lot we're expecting. And so yeah. it is, it's going to be interesting to see how, how that works. And it also, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how that, that federal money is, is sort of devied up. Right. Cause like yeah. there's all kind of, all over the place, you know, people, you know, we need, um, interconnection infrastructure uh, and TND infrastructure. So it's going to yeah. be interesting to, to track that. And while we're talking about, um, you know, sort of uh, those policies, um, I am curious about, you know, you mentioned that you're, you're, you know, in, invested in, in storage as well. And that's something that you're, you're including with your projects. So I'm just curious about like, from that perspective, and, um, you know, there's also the direct pay uh, incentive floating around, like, what are, the, what, are, what are other policies on the federal and maybe some state levels where you're, where you're active as well, that, that you're either, looking at or, or, or hoping for? Sure. Well, you know, I mean, right now, I'm, all eyes are on the Build Back Better. And uh, I'm still trying to digest what exactly was in the <laughs> in the bill that was passed, uh, sure. you know, on Friday, <laughs> just just, you know, three days ago or four days ago. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, um, so I think all eyes there, um, you know, we're real excited about the prospect of a full 10 year extension of the investment tax credit. Sure. You know, we we've been riding what we call a solar coaster for over a decade and the fits and starts and the financial gymnastics that need to happen at the end of the every calendar year to maximize the, you know, uh, the incentive via these tax credits uh, is is just, it's mind boggling. And the fact that we might move beyond that sort of constant uncertainty and not knowing where we'll be in a few years or will there be an ITC or will there not be, that, that's going to be huge. Um, we're, um, 
you know, we're obviously also very, very excited about the standalone energy storage tax credit. Right. You know, um, the way those projects are currently incentivized, you can bring a, a, a investment tax credit to a storage project, but there are guardrails around how and 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 when you can do that. Specifically, you know, there's a certain minimum charge uh, requirement from the solar generation asset that. You know, unfortunately, we just can't meet in the Northeast. We don't have the same solar irradiance that, um, you know, folks in the desert Southwest enjoy. So, you know, we basically couldn't bring that energy storage tax credit to the table. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so so that that's a game changer. Um, you know, we we like the, uh, the idea of having kickers on the ITC for low and moderate income offtake. Uh, and we really like... Uh, you know, the idea of uh, citing these generation assets in uh, economically disadvantaged areas and creating um, job opportunities in those in those areas. Uh, and quite frankly, as a, as a benefit corporation, um, we really like the concept of only being able to secure those tax incentives if you are bringing prevailing wage labor with qualified apprenticeship programs to your projects. Um, you know, that, 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 that is, uh, I think from a social standpoint, that is, I think that's one of the most progressive elements of this, uh, this proposed legislation. Um, gosh, um, you know, with respect to additional incentives, I think we touched earlier, would love to see, you know, and, and this is going to be more at the state level, but a continued incentivization around um, the brownfields and the landfills, uh, especially in newer markets, uh, and or um, you know markets that haven't quite reached maturity, and you know it's it's funny to say New Jersey hasn't quite reached maturity because there's been a lot of activity there, yeah. but there's obviously a ton of electrical demand there as well. So they still have a ways to go on their solar and other renewable energy deployment, um, and we really like what we're seeing coming out of New Jersey with respect to the incentivization of the landfills and brownfields down there. So that you know the the public policy is critical. Um, we um, we you know we support these legislative engagements in all of the states in which we're active, um, and through uh, the Solar Energy Industries Association or SIA, you know we're you know we're moving towards thirty percent of our electrical supply by solar by twenty thirty, and um, you know we're going to need any and all uh, available land in order to do that. But at the same time, we need to be cognizant of the fact that. You know, we're not going to be utilizing every last uh, developable acre for solar. Um, you know, I, I did a recent calculation uh, for the state of Vermont. Um, you know, in order to meet the now um, legal requirements of of legislation that passed um, a year or so back, called the Global Warming Solutions Act, which essentially requires decarbonization or requires uh, a reduction in our greenhouse gas emissions over the next, uh, well, there's there, there are metrics for getting to 2025, 2030, and then 2050. Um, in order to fully decarbonize our transportation and our building thermal sectors and to generate enough electricity from clean energy to support those transitions or those decarbonization efforts, we would need like 300 megawatts per year of solar in the state of Vermont. 
And, you know, that sounds like a heck of a lot, you know, 3000 acres over 10 years, you know, that, that sounds like an awful lot, but when you do the calculation, that's only 0.3% of the state of Vermont's land area. And, you know, obviously the state of Vermont is not the state of Maine in terms of geographical footprint, the state of New York. It's uh, so it's, it's really, it's quite modest, but you know, it does speak to the fact that um, while brownfields and landfills and other preferred sites are, um, you know, we, we'd like to harness any and all of them. They will not be the only sites that we are delivering clean uh, renewable energy on. And uh, we, we need to we need to move towards that. That's why I get really excited about our work and supporting the agrivoltaics uh, industry. I guess, for lack of a better word, or the agrivoltaics movement, I guess, is probably a better way to say it. Because, you know, if we can make the argument that we're delivering projects that are generating, you know, carbon free electricity, while at the same time, helping to grow crops, uh, helping to uh, encourage uh, pollinators, uh, pollinators in the community, um, which is critically important for our future food security, uh, and, and we can do so in terms of delivering a project that's more aesthetically pleasing um, that, you know, and the benefits list just goes on and on, right? There's academic research that speaks to um, improvements to soil structure from, you know, uh, these deep rooted pollinator plants from decreases in uh, phosphorus laden runoff that impacts our waterways. Um, and then finally um, that increases uh, significantly the carbon sequestration of a, of, a, of a piece of land as compared to business as usual agricultural practices, which are either pasture, uh, hay, or corn generally in the Northeast, you know, that is going to provide another avenue for the agricultural landowners that we work with to further diversify their income streams, right? So we'll be able to approach our agricultural landowners and say, we're going to give you a lease payment for this, you know, somewhat unproductive, name it 10, 20, 30 acres of your farm. And we're also going to provide you, you know, in, 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 with an opportunity to increase your carbon sequestration benefits, which are going to have value, right? There's going to be a carbon market. Uh, it's coming this decade. Um, and with it will be the opportunity for rural landowners whether you're you know, managing a timber lot or uh, an active agricultural uh, piece of property to monetize the carbon sequestration benefits associated with your land. And I think that's a game changer right there. Yeah, well, right on. It's, it's gonna be an interesting um, next few years. There's no question about that. And it's gonna be fun to, to track all these things and, and to see where, where Encore goes. And, and I know that you guys are gonna be at the forefront of a lot of that. So. Um, yeah, we'll be, we'll be in touch and, and looking forward to, uh, reconnecting down the road, but I want to appreciate, I want to thank you, uh, Chad for, for being on the, on the podcast today. And, uh, you know, I feel like I could talk with you forever, but, uh, I think we'll, we'll, we'll call it there. And, uh, yeah, I, I'm looking forward to, uh, seeing other uh, big things that Encore is working on, uh, down the road. Likewise, Andrew. Yeah. Uh, really enjoyed the conversation and, uh, would welcome the opportunity to continue it at some point. And uh, yeah, all the best to you and yours for a happy holiday. All right, thanks. Appreciate it. All right. It.